Hi there and thanks for joining us on this week's episode. The 23-year-old jeweller from Ballancolic who says the future is in bespoke design. The award-winning kitchen that dispels the myth that all hospital food is bland and boring. And the procurement expert with a timely warning about Brexit. I'm Jonathan Healy and this is Red Business. Red Business, Cork's exclusive business podcast. It's hard to avoid Brexit. We still don't know what the outcome is going to be. Britain continues to negotiate with itself as the rest of us look on and hope against hope that a solution will be found that will prevent a no-deal fallout on October the 31st. The real challenge, though, is how seriously people are taking Brexit. I've done a lot of Brexit events around the country and it never ceases to amaze me how little preparation has been undertaken by a lot of our small and medium-sized enterprises. My next guest says a no-deal Brexit could see some businesses fail as early as Christmas in a no-deal scenario. He has also been at many of those events that I've been at. Mike McGrath of Arvro Procurement. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, but it, it is a very alarming situation because I think we, we would have started doing events together um, probably the ones of about 18 months ago. And, and you, unfortunately for you, had to listen to me giving my spiel at the start of every single event. And it was all it all centred around we don't know how what's going to happen and when it's going yeah. to happen. And, and we're still we're still here now. It's amazing. We're concerned that there'll be logistics, customs, delays, divergence of standards. There will be difficulties that businesses will, will never encumbered before, but we still don't know exactly what what it's going to be. So that's the that is the challenge, and that's the frustration for businesses. It's not like GDPR last year, where there was a, a date and a risk in mind. You could focus on that. You could take the measures and approaches. But with Brexit, it's multifaceted. It affects different industries more than others. It affects companies within sectors differently than others, depending on their own supply chains and their own exposures. So it, it's very challenging to prepare for. And again, like you said, the UK are continuing to negotiate with themselves. We've been doing these events and we at, at these events, you're always saying, by X date, we will know what's going to look like. But that date has never come. Yeah. We're still 20 days out not knowing what's going to happen. And when... Uh I do these events. You always, you. I always ask the question: Who here in the room is fully ready? No hands go up. I, I did an event without you recently. I hate to break it. I know it's like the Rolling Stones having broken up. Uh, but I did one, and and one of the things that came back was in the uh, that something silly like sixty five or sixty six percent hadn't even done the most basic thing, which was to apply for something called an ERI ERI number. That's how you pronounce it. Um, and they hadn't even done that level of basic preparation. You found that through your own survey as well, that the Absolutely. companies are just not that getting ready. Revenue outlined that, last, I heard that about 10 days ago as well, that of the 100,000 businesses that traded with the UK in 2018, 60% of them don't have an ERI number. Now, the ERI number is required to import or export. It's the first question that will be on an import documentation. So, And it's not difficult to get. This is the thing. You go on, you go on to Revenue Online, you, go on, you click on registrations and you tick a box that you need this number. The HMRC had the same challenge in the UK. And they've stopped asking companies to register. They just sent them all out an ERI number. Now, I do think the government and revenue should be considering something like that because trade will stop. If you can't, if you don't have an ERI number, the paperwork that you present at customs on the 1st of November or there afterwards will, will, will be rejected and, and the product will sit in, in the port. The, t- the truck or the, or the pallet won't move. So people need that ERI number to trade with the UK in future. And it's amazing that companies haven't done it. Why have people been so reluctant to do this? Because when you speak to them... Um, you you obviously ask them the question, why have you stuck your head in the sand? 
and it's a different team. Like there are some companies are quite proactive. So not, let's not let's not tear them all in the same bush. Some companies are very engaged. Some companies were very well prepared for March deadline. Um, and now a lot of companies did get burnt in March in terms of stockpiling and and, and buying products and having sort and and. and putting money into products and distribution and warehousing, which hasn't emerged, which hasn't, they got their fingers burnt. So companies haven't taken the same approach. There is, a, like we've had a number of extensions already, there's an expectation out there that there's going to be another extension. That's the absolute sentiment by and large that we're getting. But there's no guarantee of that. Absolutely no guarantee. And obviously there's a completely different animal negotiating on behalf of the UK now. Theresa May had a different approach. Boris Johnson is looking to leave deal or no deal. So you can't take that expectation anymore. Um, the, and people are there is a lot of breaks of fatigue but that is a big concern and that is the issue um, there certainly will be different approaches around how the customs and borders are going to be checked HMRC and, and through their border delivery group are saying they're going to prioritise flow so the UK are saying that there will be limited checks on their side of the border for the first six months revenue are completely completely different approach that they're going to check absolutely everything that's coming into the country and that's because it's coming into the European Union now that's what they're saying what will happen in reality is a completely different message and Brexit if it does occur it'll evolve in terms of the risks it'll evolve in terms of the challenges mm. and it'll, it'll change over time as well and that's, that's what people can't forget you, you, You're an expert in procurement um, to the uninitiated what is procurement? The, the, we, we are procurement business. the simplest thing is we, we help companies to buy better so we, we analyse what they're purchasing, we look at their supply base, we look at what goods and services are coming in the back door to the operation and to see how that can be bought better. Buy, buying better is either reducing the costs around it or reducing the risks or improving the, the, the sustainability of the supply chain. So it, it, that's our focus. That has been our focus for the last 10 years. And, and Brexit obviously has been for two years. It's yeah. carried the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've learned in my Brexit journey, if I can call it that, is that every organisation out there is as good as the weakest link in that supply chain. So if you are making a machine, let's say you are making a machine mm-hmm. and it's a very expensive machine with a thousand parts, if the supplier of the smallest part isn't Brexit ready, you won't be able to make your machine. Correct. That's it. And that's what people are, are, are forgetting. And we've done a lot of work with companies. I've spoken to a lot of companies that said their brakes are ready, that they don't have particular brakes or risks. But actually, when you sit down then and pull out their list of suppliers and go through where the product is coming from, a lot of businesses are buying through agents and distributors, both on this island and the UK. And they haven't fully engaged with them to understand how they're going to come, overcome Brexit. So there will be products that you go to order in November that you won't be able to get. And now if you, if you need that product in your machine, if you need that component, uh, if that is, is a component reg- regulated by REACH or by CE, if it's a European standard, if it's a product that, that is certified to European market, how are you going to get that in the future if you're dealing with the UK and NOSLR? If the UK and NOSLR haven't taken the steps to get a, UK, a EU notified body to certify the goods. Is it as apocalyptic as that, that some companies go close and that they're unaware of the risk that is currently, that, that they are exposed to? In a no-deal scenario, which is the track we're currently on, the cost of doing business for some businesses and sectors is going to be significantly higher. The operating cost and the cash flow impact is going to be huge. So you're talking about customs and duties, potentially. You're talking about logistics costs. The paperwork administration, the, the, it is estimated that to process it, one document for any import or export is going to cost €50. Euros. Now, if you're multiplying that by a massive amount of volume coming through, it's going to, be, it's going to all add up. There's also the VAT, which... 
businesses haven't fully got their head around as well. At the moment, you're buying from the UK. It's VAT exempt. It's a zero VAT rated. In future, you will have to pay for that VAT. Now, obviously, you can claim that back. But it's a cash flow hit. And sure, we all know it's cash flow. It closes businesses. It's not poor customers. It's cash flow is a killer. And that's the issue, really. And we and we have mentioned it. And from the preparation we've talked about, I've spoken to a number of businesses this week who still believe Brexit won't happen. They still believe that the government are going to intervene at the last hour and resolve the problem. No, that's not the Irish government's choice. They'd mm. love to do it, but that's not in their control. Uh, they've announced this week uh, in the budget a 1.2 billion support mechanism for businesses. But if there's 200,000 businesses uh, affected by Brexit, that's a 6,000 euro support for each business. 6,000 euro won't keep the business no, going. No, it, it, won't, it won't keep it going too long. What's the most important thing they need to do today if somebody has not really started that Brexit journey yet? The, the for, the, there's, there's, there's a range of Brexit supports out there. There's a lot of help that's available from all the government bodies. In fairness, some they, they have been quite proactive. Businesses need to engage. They need to understand the top three or four risks, be that with their supply chain, be that with their, their finances. They need to start scenario planning on what the cost output might be. It's going to impact their margin. It's going to impact their pricing. They need to speak to their customers about the requirements around GDP, uh, GDPR, REACH, CE, and depending on the sector then after that. So... But well, there's plenty of help out there. Uh, one of the things they could do is download your free ebook, which is called Five Actions to Take Now. Uh, you can download it from your website, which is arvo.ie. Arvo.ie. All the details are there. But uh, look, here's hoping it won't come to pass, but we have to prepare for all eventualities, one of which is quite unpleasant. Mike McGrath of Arvo Procurement, thank you so much for joining us in Red Business. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for the time. Red Business. All that's best about business in Cork. Jewellery is not an area that I'm particularly well versed on, apart from the odd trip to buy an occasional piece for my good lady wife. But my next guest was bitten by the bug at a very young age and is herself quite young on the journey to becoming an entrepreneur. Kim McGee, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, You actually decided to be a jeweller when? When you were in transition year, was it? Um, yeah, it would be transition year when I did um, work placement with a hand engraver and jeweller in Cork, who's actually family friend as well. But um, well, probably family now at this stage. But um, so I started there with him, and from then I just knew I was what I wanted to do. And it, it's not a natural thing to kind of gravitate towards. So, did, what did you have a passion for it straight away? Um, I suppose I did, and when I reflect on it now, when I was younger. I actually started beading when I was really young and I used to sell <laughs> jewellery in the country markets in West Cork. So when I think about it now, it obviously was in me from a very young age. Yeah. And did you make much money off them now? Um, well, it was huge money to a young child. <laughs> but yeah. um, so you obviously stayed in school uh, and kept going with that. So when did you decide to fulfill, pursue it as a career? Um, probably around Fifth and sixth year, I had my sights set that I wanted to go to Kilkenny. There's a course run with the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland. It's a goldsmithing skills and jewellery design course. And they kind of accept 12 people every two years. So that was the mark that I had my eyes set on. It's kind of specialist, right? So when you said at home, hi, guys, you know, I, I know there's loads of universities I could go to, but I really want to go to Kilkenny and become a goldsmith. What was the reaction? Go for it. Yeah, they knew I was always the type that never kind of wanted to go into anything other than craft kind of work. But um, when I came home and wanted to do that, they were delighted. Okay. It was something I was happy to do. And y- you did that then. And there's a big jump still between doing that and setting yourself up with your own business. Yes, so there when, really is. So what what was the, the genesis of that? Um, I think there's kind of a big difference of working for people and then 
working for yourself inside kind of a craft and a trade because you get to put a bit of yourself into your own work rather than working for other people when you're kind of pursuing somebody else's goals and dreams and their work so I thought it was best for me to go the route of doing my own thing and working for myself and designing my own stuff and being true to kind of what I want to do and what I like doing. So what is the classic Kim McGee piece? I mean what what, what have you decided to make your own style? Um, I love stones and stone settings so I do incorporate a lot of kind of tiny tiny stones into my kind of work I love micro settings so I do it all myself underneath a microscope and set the stones from 0.5 of a mil up to whatever size up to that's a pretty yeah. small stone isn't tiny. it you sneeze and it's gone yeah you kind of they're like eyelashes they're so thin you can't see them but with the microscope they're huge but um, it's you have a steady hand then I'm guessing do you um, I do, yeah, at times. <laughs> <laughs> Not after lots of coffee. But no, yeah. no, 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 <laughs> early in the day. But it is very fine work. Yeah, um, very that, fine. That wouldn't be suited to everybody. My hands shake all over the place. I'd be brutal at this. I'd make a brutal surgeon. But, you know, yeah, you have to stay calm, I'm assuming, because you could probably ruin a piece with a slip of the hand exactly exactly with just a slip of a hand it can be ruined but it's just taking things slowly and with lots of patience and like as my um who I kind of learned from Don O'Mani who's the hand engraver and jeweler in Cork he always says um measure twice cut once yes so and that's what you do have to do you have to make sure that it's exactly everything measured out before you make the move to actually set the stones or drill the hole or make the cut so you don't mess up. I'm looking at you. You're what age now? You're 20? 23. 23, right? Yeah. And, and you are part of the digital native generation where everything is being automated and everything is being done yeah. fancily. It's it's not a natural progression for someone of your age to say, well, actually, I'm going to get down and dirty with my hands yeah. and, and drill in and set the stone and all of that. Yeah. It's a real art. And do you think there's still, even in the digital age, robots doing everything, that there will be a demand for this type of product? Um, I think there's always a demand for someone that can do the skills. But yes, it is becoming very kind of computer aided with CAD and all of that now that there is machines doing it and yeah, it can I, be done. I'd but say they just... wouldn't be the same, would they? Because jewellery is very personal. If, if somebody's putting jewellery on themselves, yeah, I, I'd imagine they'd much prefer to be done by hand rather than by machine. That's it. And that's hopefully what I'm hoping people will <laughs> prefer as well. But um, no, it is. It is. Jewellery is very much a personal touch and you can add in everybody's own flair and stuff when I get to sit with somebody and talk about what they want it's their style it's what suits them it can be adjusted to what they like and it's just more personal it's also like what I do it kind of is more bespoke kind of stuff and it takes away kind of from the fashion industry where everything is mass produced and kind of fast fashion of jewellery and but like pro proper jewellery would never have been mass produced so in other words no. the, the lovely heirlooms that you might have got from your granny yeah. That was never mass produced. Never, no. And it's kind of, it's the jewellery that lasts as well. You see the jewellery from years being passed down through generations and it's the jewellery of that has more sustainable quality, that it lasts longer and it's better. And I see a lot of people coming in now and they come to me and they want to recycle their jewellery and that's something that I do as well as people have 
kind of heirlooms from grannies and other generations that they themselves don't wear. But obviously the metal is still precious metal and good metal. So I take out the stones and melt it down and rework it and remake it into something else. So the sentimental value is still there. You work with pretty expensive stuff. So you work with diamonds, you work with gold. Uh, I'd be freaked out by that in case I'd make a mess of it and and, and it wouldn't be of any use after that. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, it is an expensive mistake if you do make a mistake. But... um, Yes, it is very, very expensive. Measure twice, cut once. That's it. Don't make the mistake. But you kind of get over the fear of it after a while. You're used to handling stuff and you kind of have to put it to the back of your head. You can't constantly be thinking of... What's the most expensive little thing that you have worked with? Like, was there a very expensive diamond that you had to set? or? Um, I did a really nice piece for a client and she actually had five rings um, that she wanted melted down and all put into one. And there was, I'd say, seven large diamonds. And then I set in 34 small diamonds into it. And the large diamonds were very good quality. The highest colour, higher clarity, highest, like, nice quality cut and everything. So they were really nice. It was an expensive piece. I would say so. Do do you find yourself now looking at people's jewellery and I'm presuming there's people walk around thinking they've got the finest hanging off their finger whereas in reality it's probably not could you could you tell straight away by looking at something whether we're, we're looking at quality graphite or indeed a high-end diamond <laughs> um yeah I could but um I kind of just keep most you keep, my, it to yourself. keep it to myself yeah <laughs> um yeah no I could I also I did um a diamond practical course with um, the Gemological Association of Great Britain so with GEMA so I have like a diamond grading practical under my belt as well so so wh- where's next? I mean, you have your own business now, which is Kim Great Jewellery, which we will come to in a minute. Yeah. But is it just to grow and expand that out to, to make these that's kind the of bespoke pieces? To, yeah. I think these pieces are going to outlive you, me and probably the next generation as well. And that's they? what's nice about it is that you know that they're going to be there and be passed down, hopefully. So uh, how do people find out uh, about your work? And is there a website they can go to? And um, there is a website and it actually just launched on um, went live on Monday, the 7th of October. So and um, that's McGeeJewelry.com. McGeeJewelry.com. And yeah. you've got a few pieces up there. I've got, as I kind of am saying to people, I've got the bread and butter pieces that you make your living on, the kind of pe- everyday pieces that people can buy. And then there's my pages about recycling and upcycling your jewellery and reusing it and okay. then getting bespoke pieces made. And no limits to what that might ultimately bring you. No. Okay. No. Well, look, congratulations to have achieved so much by the tender age of 23. <laughs> thank you very we much. wish you the very best. Look, McGeeJewelry.com is the website address. Kim McGee, thank you for joining us in Red Business. Thank you very much. The only show in town for Cork Business, Red Business. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the QMark Awards in the Burlington Hotel in Dublin as Master of Ceremonies. And one of the groups that won an award caught my eye because it is a building we're very familiar with uh, here in Cork, the Bon Secours Hospital. And they won the QMark for hygiene and food safety, recognised for excellence uh, in their area of healthcare. Basically, because the standard of food and the way they prepare it is pretty much at the top of their game. Their head of catering accepted the award on the night on the stage, and I'm delighted to say she's with us now here in the Red FM studios. Thelma Farrelly, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, you're a tip woman. I am actually a leash woman, but living in tip. And working in Cork. And working in Cork. That's a very confusing existence, That's even it. before you get going. <laughs> um, but you, you, you were there on the night in Dublin. Tell me what it meant to win this award. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's our third time trying um, competing for the award. And it's a lengthy process. It's very difficult um, to achieve that level of standard. Um, 
like you know, and to be able to compete against you know very good businesses and hospitals and healthcare in in our area, and um, to be able to get it and to be and to come out on top is fantastic. Not only for the hospital, but for our team as well. You you've uh, a very busy. Um, mm. I mean, I suppose we'll call it a kitchen, but it's more than a kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have 1,200 staff. There's 100,000 people pass through the hospital every year. Correct, I yeah. mean, there isn't much time to be standing around, mm. is there? No, absolutely not. And I suppose we are the only department within the hospital that we're cuts at the clock all the time. We have to be ready for lunch at 12 o'clock. We have to be ready for even service at 4 o'clock. So it is... It is um, precision the whole way through the day so you have to be ready and you have to have the quality of food that's expected by both the um, the patient and the visitor and of course for our staff member as well so it is busy out. The, the expectation of hospital food is quite low mm. uh, and I think we are lucky in Cork insofar as that mm. of the hospitals we have the food standard is normally very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but how conscious are you of that low expectation that people are coming in and going, yeah. Jenny Mac, what's under this tray? Yeah, we're we're a private hospital, so our expectation is always quite high. We put the pressure on ourselves to make sure our standards are high. And um, we buy locally as far as possible as we can. Um, like our meat suppliers and all that are local. So when we buy the best cuts of meat, we're um, uh, on a daily basis. So um, we... We are very conscious of it. We are very, very conscious that we, we need to give quality across the board, not only to the patient, but as also to in the restaurant, to our staff member and to our, our visitor alike. And it has to be nutritious as well. You can't be thrown out any old schlop. No, absolutely not. And like, um, I suppose there's huge emphasis now on calorie intake and allergen information and an awful lot of work has gone into that. Um, you know, we work, we have a very good dietitian team on, on, on site um, that work very closely with us. And like every menu and every menu item that we have is uh, meticulously um, calculated for allergens and for and for calories so there's a huge amount of work in the back end that probably no one ever sees um, and again we have a very good chefing team um, our head chef Paul McGinn he came from Michelin Star restaurant and he um, he takes absolute pride in what he does So and he's a great brigade of chefs in the kitchen yeah, so. but you, you mentioned the fact that it is the team but it is from, from the person who mm-hmm. drops the trays uh, to the chef who decides the menu to mm-hmm. those who, who boil the peas or whatever they have to do yeah. I mean you wouldn't have won this award unless they all collectively came together. Absolutely not. You can't do that on your own and I would never even attempt to take the accolade on my own steam. I I am very much dependent on a great team uh, behind me. Um, Starting with the Chef Brigade in, in the kitchen led by Paul and um, and then again with the restaurant staff and, and with the ward catering staff as well and they're brilliant they're um, they're meticulous in their delivery and, and because yeah, I lost I, without them. I, I'm conscious as well hospitals are they're they're funny places because mm-hmm. you know you're not going to be there unless you're sick no. and it's it's the little touches isn't it it's, yeah. it's the yeah. little bit of well yeah. I'll come back afterwards and give you that or will I, will I mind that for you and bring it yeah. back to you later it's on it's the attention to detail and I suppose we are the only group of people within the hospital setting that we are not poking and prodding the patient they look forward to seeing us coming <laughs> they enjoy that hospitality and you know, and we try our best to stand and have that little two or three minutes of a conversation with them outside of the clinical um, part of the hospital so you know they do enjoy seeing us coming you know we give them what they want as you know as far as possible so um, and we go above and beyond if, this, if there's something not on the menu and they want and they want it we try our best to deliver it I mean the, the hospital has come on so much I haven't been in the new bit yet but yes. uh, it, it is much, a much bigger hospital so has Absolutely. that has that put more pressure on the kitchen uh, No not so much so you know we, we, we had a lot of planning in place um, in the lead up to the new build opening so um, we just went live with that um, the last of the, of the new build opened only this week um, and um, I suppose now we have the, the full thing which is 
Um, and, you know, four new theatres is after opening, 81 new private bedrooms. Um, we have a 23-bed day infusion ward. Um, um, and um, we have a critical care unit after opening as well. And I, next, in two weeks' time, the, the new cafe, 50-seater cafe, will be opening as well. Oh, it's a new cafe as well? Yes, and you're in charge yes. of that too? Yes, I am. Okay, indeed, so that, yeah. you're going to have to maintain the standards that you've oh, won the Mark yeah. Award for. Um, have you something that is your favourite on the menu? The favourite of the menu. Oh my God, there's many favourites. Um, I suppose it's the beef. The beef is lovely. Um, it always goes down well. Um, sirloin of beef. So um, yeah, it's very much, it's not only my favourite, but the favourite of many. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's out there. Well, look, congratulations to you and mm-hmm. all of the team. Well Thank done you. to Bond's Cure Hospital on opening their new wing with their 81 new beds. Okay. It's it's the funny thing, nobody ever wants to go there. Uh, no. But we know that at least when we do, we'll mm-hmm. be well fed and looked after. Um, Thelma Farrelly, Head of Catering at the Bond's Cure Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us and the very best of luck. Thank you, Jonathan. My thanks, as always, to all of my guests. Don't forget, every episode of Red Business is on redextra.ie and available for download. Neil Hennessy produced, and we'll catch you on the next one. Red Business, Cork's exclusive business podcast.